Welcome to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone trying to figure out who or what to trust when it comes to health news. I'm Matt Fox, Professor of Epidemiology and Global Health, and I am here with Don Thea and Chris Gill from the Department of Global Health. Hello. Hi. Just waiting for them to say anything. Uh, and anything. We, what? Anything. Anything. And we are here, as always, broadcasting from the Boston University Godly Studio. Before we get started, we want to take a second to remind you about Population Health Exchange, the Boston University School of Public Health resource hub for lifelong learning. Find out more at www.pophealthex.org, where you'll find this podcast, as well as many other population health learning programs and tools. Uh, and also a quick plug for the uh, Population Health Exchange's Summer Institute, which is going on this summer. Uh, and you can go to Population Health Exchange's website to find out more information, but we've got courses uh, in things like meta-analysis and uh, SAS that you can go ahead and sign up for. So go ahead and take a look on the website. Those are the weeks of June 11th and June 18th. For those who are not aware, SAS is a course you, you, you take when you're trying to talk back to your mom. SAS. Yeah. Sassy. Oh, jeez. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, uh, Nick, cut that out. How to do that? It's can an we, essential um, public health school. At oh, this point, have demanded it. Just to be oh, clear, can we, can we fire the writers? <laughs> This what version not... of SAS are we talking about? Um, okay. <laughs> and now on to the show. Oh, so today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we are going to get into a study that looks at the changes in the human papillomavirus, known as HPV, uh, in Scotland since the introduction of the vaccine and whether or not we believe that that is causal. We do believe it's causal, but, but uh, we want to find out how effective the vaccine is. In the second part of the podcast, uh, which is our deep dive, we're going to look at the uh, we're going to talk about the objectives of peer review and what it is we're actually trying to do. Probably a conversation we should have had in episode one, so we may have to go back and edit that in. Can and we then just our, change the numbers. Yeah, absolutely. We just mess it all around. Then in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we'll get into some things that put smiles on our faces, or Chris will tell us how Facebook is making us all miserable. So let's get into our Journal Club segment, which is our segment one. And here we're looking at an article that uh, looks at changes in HPV prevalence over time. Um, the article was published in Lancet Infectious Diseases, and it is titled Changes in the Prevalence of Human Papillomavirus Following a National Bivalent Human Papillomavirus Vaccination Program in Scotland, a seven-year cross-sectional study. That I didn't realize quite how long a title that is. Uh, anyway, it's by lead author Kimberly Cavanaugh from the University of, and I can't pronounce this. Can any of you guys? Strathclyde? Strathclyde, yeah. Is that how it's pronounced? Strathclyde? The Clyde is the, is the river that runs through Glasgow. Okay, so Strathclyde, Glasgow, uh, which is in the UK. Now, I, um, uh, let me give you some of the, the headlines on this one, and I will tell you there were not that many headlines on this one. We just felt this one was an important one to take on. But, of course, it did get picked up by the, the BBC because this one was – Done in Scotland, which says vaccine credited with HPV virus reduction in Scotland. And The Guardian said HPV rates dropped 64% in decades since recommend, recommended CDC vaccination. Sorry, I should have said that one was not specifically related to this study. That was a more general headline. Sorry, should have said that to start off with. But the first one was. The first one was based on this study. So, Don, can you uh, walk us through this study? Tell us what they did. Sure, Matt. Um, I, uh, let, let me give you a little bit of background because um, it's, it, it may seem like this is not a very important um, kind of infection, but in fact, it actually is. And we, we've, we, we know that HPV um, is 
really the, um, a, a very, very important um, contributor to the development of um, cervical cancer in women. Um, and there, I think CDC said that there were about 39,000 cases of cervical cancer per year in women in the United States, and about 31,000 of them are due to this particular virus, HPV virus. Um, this virus has um, several, m many strains, only a, a small portion of which actually are what we call oncogenic, which means that they cause cancer. Yep. And the, the, there have been um, a couple of vaccines, actually three vaccines that have been developed recently that are very effective in terms of preventing the acquisition of this particular um, virus. It, it in and of itself doesn't really produce any harm. It's really the subsequent development of cancer, mm -hmm. um, most notably cervical cancer, but also anal cancer and um, penile cancer um, are caused by infection with um, HPV. So uh, cervical cancer is, is what this has been known for, and it's, it's, a, it's a really important um, morbidity and mortality, um, in, both in the United States and, and across the world. But um, more recently, it's been noticed that there's been this marked increase in the development of head and neck cancer, primarily in men. And um, it is something that... Um, has been looked at recently, and not only is there a large increase in head and neck cancer in men, but th th that cancer is also associated with um, HPV. Um, and it's something that uh, therefore makes the, uh, this particular disease really very important for both men and for women. So this particular study was a, was a study that was really interesting because it was done in Scotland in a, um, in a setting that really couldn't be done in many other right. places, couldn't have been done in the United States. And um, could be done in Scotland in part because there was a point in time, 2008, when Scotland decided that they were going to introduce one of these vaccines, this bivalent vaccine. It's a vaccine that's good against um, at, at protecting against two serotypes of HPV, serotypes 16 and 18. And those two are particularly oncogenic, but there are a few others, 31, 33, and 45, that are also less oncogenic, but also can produce cancer. Um, but this vaccine was directed only against those two strains. And um, what they did is they introduced this vaccine um, in all of the schools in 2008, and they were able to cover about 92% of the population um, of 12 and 13-year-old girls. And then they also did vaccinate what they call catch-up. So they, ca they, they vaccinated subsequently, fairly rapidly, um, girls between 13 and 18 years of age. Um, and what they did is they then went back or they waited um, until those girls who were vaccinated when they were 12 and 13 years old had their first um, um, obstetrical or, or gynecological exam where they had their cervix swabbed looking for evidence of either precancer or cancer. Mm -hmm. And they would swab some of the fluid from the cervix and they would then test it. And they looked for the presence of human pap papillomavirus in those samples um, and, and because it was Scotland and because they have um, a great data system there, they were able to actually hook up the results of that cervical test for the presence of this particular virus and, the, and um, whether uh, those women had, each one, one of those individual women had been immunized. And they uh, basically asked the question, is there a relationship in terms of the infection rates um, in these cohorts over, over time and their prior um, immunization rate. And they were able to, as I said previously, immunize a huge portion of the population. Um, so, that, so that really the takeaways from this study are that when they looked at the prevalence of this HPV virus in the cervixes of these women um, with each subsequent what we call birth cohort. So 
girls who were who were um, 12 and 13 in uh, you know birth year 1998 and then birth year 1999 and they followed um, the the prevalence of this infection in the samples from these these girls over time and there was a marked decrease there was a six-fold decrease in the prevalence of this of HPV in the and the cervixes of these girls over time um, and they and this accounts for like 90% of the cancers, cervical cancers found in Scotland. Um, so they found that um, that it was associated with the number of doses of the vaccine that the girls got. They found that there was no replacement of serotypes. Meaning more doses, more effect. Right. So so the the, the normal course is three doses, but it, but you it would be it would be less effective in two doses, but still effective, and less effective in one dose, but still effective. Um, they found that there were no, um, there was no evidence of replacement serotypes. So, the, um, the 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 ones that the vaccine was directed against weren't replaced by other types. And really interesting, they found that even though this vaccine is directed against 16 and 18, which is really the the the, the bad players in in this scenario, it was also effective against those other several oncogenic um, serotypes. But the most interesting thing I think is that when they looked at the girls who were part of each one of those birth cohorts who remained unvaccinated, that the prevalence of HPV in those girls, so these girls had never never been vaccinated, never seen this vaccine, um, the, the, the prevalence in those cohorts of HPV also went down. And that's what we call herd immunity. Because there was less of this HPV circulating in the population, those girls, even though they weren't directly vaccinated um, with this vaccine, were less likely to get exposed to the to the to the virus. So it's 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 really a pretty, I think, remarkable study in that it shows that really on a population basis, um, how effective um, the uh, you know the uh, high penetration of, of of a vaccine effort is in a population. And and this will result in thousands of fewer cervical episodes of cervical cancer, penile cancer, um, rectal cancer, and and head and neck cancer. I think yeah. it's a landmark study. It's really, it's really impressive. So one of the things that I, I, you either didn't say or I fell asleep for a bit was what the design was, that how they actually set this up, which is that it, this was not uh, like many of the designs that we've looked at before where we have longitudinal data. This was, um, a, I think they call it a serial cross-sectional study. Mm-hmm. Cross-sectional, by which we mean we don't follow anyone over time. We collect data on... Two people a at birth cohort, one really. point in time, and we compare the exposure and the outcome, and then we do it again in another group of people. So it's not the same people being followed over, over time. time right. it's, it's different people. Um, but there was this sort of systematic point in time when this population of, of young girls who may or may not have been vaccinated with the HPV vaccine, depending on, on you know how old they were in 2008 – by the time they reached the age of 20, all of them were being systematically sampled. And so there's the differential exposure to the vaccine. Well, actually, systematic- 50%, of, 50% of them were being systematically sampled. And that was one of the, one of the weaknesses of the study. Yeah, we'll get into that. But the point being that there's like a systematic point in time. So you're, you're capturing all this data after, um, you know, variable length of exposure to the vaccine and, and um, penetration into the population. Yeah, so, so, so one of the things that, I, that it took me a little bit to, to, to figure out here is the, the, the design, as you point out, was they were, they were sort of taking advantage of a, of a unique scenario, which is that previous studies 
uh, had had looked at this question, but uh, had generally been looking at populations where the vaccinations were being done at older ages, and therefore uh, many of the girls had already been exposed to HPV, and therefore the vaccine is is not effective at that point. This was a case where the, the whole population is being targeted for vaccination at, at 12 to 13 years old, so you're getting them at a younger age, but you're also... Um, uh, able to link the data together in a way that that you really can't do in the United States because you have a, a, a health service being provided by uh, a central government right. uh, program, system, so you can yeah. link together the the HPV rec, uh, diagnoses with the, um, the national with health the with the uh, vaccines. But further to that, the other thing I didn't realize was uh, until later was all those, the 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 people in the study, all the women in the study were roughly the same age. They right. were 20 to 21 years old, right. which is the age at which you would be recommended for your first Cervical screening. Screen. So it, it's, it's, they're different birth cohorts, but they're all being captured at the exact same age of follow-up, which right. is why they, they. And elapsed time for vaccination. Right. Right. I wasn't so clear on that. Is it well, the same? Well, if they're all being vaccinated when they're 12 or 13 years old and they're all getting their their first gynecological exam when they're 20 years old, yeah. then it's pretty consistent. It, it was my assumption, but I couldn't make it out perfectly. But anyway, so Chris, what's your, give us your take. Yeah. So hugely important study. I totally agree with Don. And, and on, you know, I, th- I think, I think there's, there's, there's a couple issues here that I thought we should um, emphasize. The first one Don had mentioned, which is that this is this is very strong proof of herd immunity, and while can you be, say what herd immunity is? So you 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 so when you're giving a vaccine to population, you have direct benefits in terms of this individual has been vaccinated; they have generated an immune response, and that immune response protects them personally from getting this infection or this disease. But a, a second benefit of some vaccines, but not necessarily all vaccines, is that the by vaccinating that individual, you also render that individual non-infectable or non-contagious, which means that they can be exposed to the to the pathogen, human papillomavirus in this case, but they can't be, acquire it and they can't transmit it. And so that means that the person who's next in that chain of exposures, which is a, a, a sexual change, this is a sexually transmitted disease, would not be at would would be at reduced risk, even if they they personally had not received the vaccine. The fact that they're having sexual intercourse with someone who had, who cannot transmit to them, protects them indirectly, and so that indirect protection is what Don is referring to as herd immunity. So you 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 vaccinate as a one proportion of the of the the population, and a larger proportion of the of the population also benefits from this. And I think it's important to distinguish it from from the the, the what they, what the authors say is. Um, protection from other serotypes or cross protection yeah. because this 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 vaccine was was directed against those two strains 16 and 18 but those other four strains um, weren't part of the vaccine makeup but they were close enough in their in their molecular makeup so that they were kind of innocent bystanders if if right. if you there will was cross protection and, and, and one of the other things that, that was shown in this is that the cross protection for those other viruses didn't really wane over time, mm-hmm. which I think was a really important point because prior studies had shown that, in fact, that pro- cross protection may exist, but it looks like it wanes over time. But that 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 in retrospect to this study was because those other studies were methodologically flawed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think you know this is a this is a very good example of where you know one could sort of like. Start with hypothesis and say, you know, here's the way that they they set up their study, where you've got this vaccination policy that begins at a 
discrete point in time, 2008. Prior to that, no one was getting the vaccine. After that, the vaccine was being systematically used and many people got the vaccine. But depending on their age, they have, may have received zero doses, one, two, or three doses of, of vaccine. So they would have varying degrees of protection. Um, and then we're going to follow them out. Those, you know, those young women are growing older. And when they get to the age of 20 or 21, that's when the system starts to systematically sample them to see if they have HPV. And so if they were 19 years old in 2008, they would have received maybe one two or three doses, I suppose, or very likely no doses. And prior to 2008, everybody got no doses. Mm -hmm. And so you have this sort of dose response, you know, experiment built into this, as well as what is the effect of age at vaccination in terms of its efficacy. And, and, and Dot already alluded to the fact that if, you know, this is a, a vaccine that we believe works by preventing the acquisition of HPV. It is not a therapeutic vaccine in that it is not designed to change the outcome of infection with HPV. It is designed to stop you getting it full stop. But if you've already got the disease, the vaccine is not believed to right. have any benefit. And so if that's true, you can put all those factors together and say, well, what would you expect the data to look like? Right. You would say, OK, well, if you were um, on that older spectrum in 2008, you were 19 or 20 years old at the time or you were you know, already you know, 20 years old in 2007. And so that you would not have got that. You would expect that the you know, the, you would be representing the baseline incidence of HPV in that population and that as you move into younger and younger girls, you know, who were 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, eventually 12 years old in 2008, that the impact of the vaccination would become bigger and bigger and bigger as, as you're getting higher, con you know, proportions of the girls vaccinated and at an earlier age before they before have started to have sex. Yep. So both of those being very important. And if that is true, you would anticipate that the, that the, in, the indirect benefit would show some lag from the direct benefit, that those who got the vaccine are going to see a quick drop in, in, the, in the incidence of acquisition of HPV, and the indirect benefit is going to lag by several years because of that shape of the population. And, and with that, you know, you, you could almost draw the graph in your mind to see what it would look like, and that is exactly the shape of the data that uh, was observed in the study, which yeah. I think gives it so much face validity. You know, what, one thing that I that I can't remember, maybe you guys do, I can't remember whether they um, they mentioned this, um, but part of the reason why they were so, so successful at getting such a high rate of vaccination is that it, the vaccination was done at school. Um, so it was it was a captured population and, and, and they got very high rates. They didn't say whether they vaccinated both boys and girls. Uh, in this case, they was only girls. Yeah. Only girls, which, which brings up a really interesting point because we see this major effect and this major herd effect despite the fact that it was only the girls that got vaccinated. So it would, you know, presumably the, 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 the majority of those of the, of that chain of sexual transmission would be heterosexual. And th we're seeing this big an effect, even though all of the boys that these girls are having sex with were themselves unvaccinated. So if you can imagine how much more efficacious this might be on a population basis in terms of the herd effect, if, they, if you in fact vaccinate both the boys and the girls, which is really, I think, one of the take home messages for mm -hmm. this, because it's such an effective vaccine and boys need to be protected as, uh, almost as much as girls. Sure. You know, and you know that the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC um, recently changed its policy to include boys. Right. I think it was yep. around 2013 right. that they did that for yep. that exact reason. This is one of the best vaccines that has ever been created. <laughs> Sorry, Matt. Uh, no one wants to let me talk today. Sorry. That's fine. 
So I want to go back to uh, something you said in the beginning, Don, which is you said there's a there was a six-fold reduction in the prevalence. Prevalence, right? Yeah, because yeah. this is cross-sectional prevalence, which I just want to make the point to people because we often talk about it's important to not just talk about six-fold. You know, we want to talk about the 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 uh, actual values that we're talking about here. So unlike, you know, the last podcast, we talked about uh, heart attacks, which was a very rare event. It was less than one in a, well, I think it was like one in a thousand or one in a, less than one in a hundred. I remember that. Um, here, we're talking about a very common event. So this was for the oncogenic uh, subtypes, uh, pre-vaccination, the prevalence was about 30%. So this is not, this is not an this uncommon, not and that six-fold reduction leaves you at the end with uh, 4.5%. So, Huge I mean, this is, it's really important to understand that a six-fold increase or a six-fold reduction can mean a lot of different things. In this case, we are talking about, you know, massive public health right. benefit Impact. here mm-hmm. that I think is important. Second thing I wanted to raise was this issue. So go back to the idea that this was a cross-sectional study or a serial cross-sectional study, the series of cross-sectional studies, really. Um, does it bother you all at all? I mean, we, we typically don't like to draw causal inferences from cross-sectional data because uh, all kinds of things can go wrong when we, we deal with cross-sectional data. For one thing, you can have selection bias, right? It could be that the, those who are vaccinated and those who are more, most likely to get HPV don't end up in our sample and we miss them. Uh, you have, in some cases, the potential for reverse causality. So, you get vaccinated because you're at, you know, at, you're you're at high risk for for getting HPV. Does that does that raise any concern in this particular case? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a, a difficult question to answer because we 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 don't know much about these girls. All we're really told in this paper is that there was a, a systematic policy to give the vaccine in at a certain age group with a catch up campaign, as Don was saying. Um, and, and yet we know not everyone was vaccinated, right, obviously. obviously. There's never 100% who are going to be vaccinated. And and then there was a systematic, you know, touch point where they yep. would see whether HPV infections had occurred. Yep. Uh, as, as a, as a, but we beyond that, we don't know, like, you know, we're, how did they select some schools versus other schools, some girls versus other girls? We have no idea about that. But the size of this leads me to 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 downplay that risk to some degree because yeah. it seems that it was much more systematic and much less like, you know, we're doing this in, in one very, very high risk population. This really felt like they're just doing it in like trying to get everybody in Scotland yeah. to do this. Well, no, I, and I agree with you in terms of the vaccination, but in terms of the, uh, those who ended up in at potential risk for being included in this study, only they, they say in the discussion, only 50% of those who would have been eligible actually get screened for cervical cancer or, or have a, a visit at which they would get, right. get screened. And therefore, there? you know, th- that, that presumably is not a random 50%. It's probably uh, associated with things like uh, socioeconomic status. And it could lead to some potential for, I think, selection bias or residual confounding, depending on how you define it. But they did include a, a measure of socioeconomic status and, and, and put that into the, into the analysis mm-hmm. and did. did not, and did not find an association, even though it's, it's, uh, People in that in that strata are at higher risk of, of acquisition. Okay, so let me let me let me lay out another hypothesis. What if uh, what if sexual behavior is changing over this time? What if if yeah. over this time period they have also been implementing you know sex education campaigns and we know more about HPV, so yep. we're trying to yep. educate Absolutely. people to 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 use condoms. 
Is that a possible explanation? A- a- absolutely. But the, the, the data that they provide here in their, in their figure, again, argues a little bit against that because they looked at the, the prevalence, excuse me, the, the proportion of, of, of young women at the age of 21, 21, 20 or 21 who were infected with HPV serotype 16, 18, 31, and 33. These are the oncogenic serotypes that Don was alluding to. But they also looked at all other serotypes of HPV. For and which so, there's no cross-reactivity. For which there's no cross-reactivity, right? So which the vaccine could not help. Now, if if we're assuming that this is selection bias and the, the, the young women who go to cervical cancer screening are, are you know, systematically having less, less exposure, less sex, um, you know, not being exposed to HPV, we would expect that the decline in HPV serotypes would be true for all serotypes, mm-hmm. whereas it is not true for all serotypes. Most of them stay constant. They're not affected by this, but the ones that are affected are uniquely the ones that are in the vaccine. So I think that that largely negates that concern. Yeah, I agree. I think that's strong evidence to suggest that that's not happening. And in fact, I mean, as Chris says, I mean, they, they, there's a, a figure that gives the uh, probability of being affected with any subtype and then the, the non-subtypes that were not in the uh, vaccine and were non-cross-reactive. Is that the right term? Cross-reactive? Right, and, and those are flat uh, over time. And they're flat. But what, what's, what's amazing to me is they're flat at around, what, 55%? And common. So I mean, this apparently is, this these is girls really are having sex too. This is a really, it's a, it's a common, this is a very common event. So, I mean, I, I agree with you completely. I thought this was a place where um, you could have, you could probably even strengthen the argument with more negative control data, by which I mean, you know, if you had, uh, if you had some um, sexual behavior. Like chlamydia data, data. Or you also had some other STI that you could show was, was staying really fairly flat over the time. Um, you know, it might strengthen the argument, but I agree with you. I'm not overly concerned. I mean, uh, you know, it's not the fact that it's cross-sectional doesn't bother me in the same way that it does. Uh, you know, uh, for one thing, we know the timing. We know that the. And I suppose we don't necessarily know the timing. We know the timing of the of the vaccination. We don't necessarily know the timing of the infection. Right. Anyway, I, I think there's a, there's actually a, a, a fairly important public health. Um, a wrinkle that's introduced by by these findings, and that is that um, at 20 years of age, girls come really in. Cool. Girls come in because for screening, and they don't come in for screening for HPV vaccine. They come in for screening for cervical dysplasia or precancer. And if this vaccine is going to be so highly effective at decreasing HPV and therefore decreasing the 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 incidence or prevalence of um, of precancer then a positive screening test will become less valuable in this setting because the positive predictive value of the test will go down because the because the prevalence of the disease in the community is going to go down. So we're going to have to rethink our approach to cervical cervical um, screening. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. I think what you're saying there needs a little bit of explanation, which is that you know people who are not familiar with with how um, validation of medical tests work. We'll often hear something like a test is, you know, 99% effective or, you know, valid. Um, and tend to think, well, that's, that's really good. 99%, that's really good. But the way that we think about how good a test is, is we have two measures, sensitivity and specificity. Sensitivity, mm-hmm. meaning of all the true positives, what proportion of them will test positive and, uh, specificity of all the true negatives, what proportion will test negative. But that, that particular value, those two values mean nothing to me if I'm the one who gets the test. Mm-hmm. Because now I either have a positive test or a negative test. And what I care about now is the positive or negative predictive value, which is what you say, which is if I test positive, what are the chances that it's positive? That you truly are that positive. I'm truly positive. And that's a function of both the sensitivity and specificity, but also 
of the prevalence. And the more rare something becomes, the more likely any positive is to be a true positive, even if it's a really good test. And and so that's I I hadn't really false thought positive, about this. Right? Sorry, false positive. What did I say? You said true positive. Didn't you mean false positive? Sorry, false positive. Yeah. False positive. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, it's going to actually have to change the way that we potentially deal with screening for HPV if it becomes a rare event. Yeah. It's the same way that in uh, when I got uh, when I got married in the state of Massachusetts, I had to get a syphilis test for whatever reason that was required in the state of Massachusetts. And I went to my doctor and he said, just so you know, I'll give you the test, but if it comes back positive, we're not going to believe it anyway. I assume he didn't mean he was just going to ignore it, but <laughs> uh, his point was that it is such a, a rare event in the state of Massachusetts that if it were to come back positive, it's much more likely to be a false positive. Right. And I think that's something that people don't really appreciate outside of our mm-hmm. world that I think is kind of important. Mm-hmm. Can I go back to, to one other issue, which is this issue of um, stereotype replacement? Yeah, The yeah, idea yeah. that uh, we we sometimes are concerned that if we introduce a vaccine against a certain set of subtypes for the you know whatever the ones here were for HPV that that that's going to create fertile ground for other subtypes to take over and maybe you know in the end we won't actually have done as much good as we think because these other ones will be pretty bad and they'll kind of just take over mm-hmm. and we said there was no evidence here for subtype replacement and I generally agree with that although I am a little curious because I didn't totally get that message. So I was looking at table three. That's not for the listener, but that's for these guys, just to point it out. But I'll, in, in, in this table, they said they looked at the uh, birth cohorts. Uh, and if you look at the uh, serotypes that were in the, in the vaccine, 16 and 8, you see these dramatic drops, in protective effects for getting the, the vaccine. If you look at the three cross-reactive types, same thing. You see these massive benefits. When you look at the other types, you see increases. Mm-hmm. But if you go down in that table, when they actually looked not by birth cohort, but by number of doses, uh, that's where you see really pretty much no benefit, no harm. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know exactly what to make of that. I mean, it, there, there's clearly some evidence of no serotype replacement. On the other hand, I wasn't sure what to make of the birth cohort issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole issue did of you, serotype replacement, it kind of goes... Did I mess it up? No, no, no. You got it right. It, 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 it harks back to the to our experience with the pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. Mm. And um, and so when, you know, there was this vaccine introduced, which had initially pneumonia. seven serotypes against this bacterium Streptococcus pneumoniae, they introduced the vaccine and they found that those seven serotypes went down, 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 down. But over time, a, a new serotype that had been previously quite rare started to occur at a higher rate. And so that is what they're, they're, they're concerned about here. But the, the biology behind the serotype changes with a bacterium versus a virus are quite different. And so with, with pneumococcus, for example, the, the, the serotyping is based on the polysaccharide capsules, these sort of gooey, gloppy, you know, wet mucousy things that the bacteria lives inside and sort of secretes around itself to protect itself. Um, the genes that code for different serotypes can switch very radically. And so a, there's an evolutionary pressure to, if you're you know, being eliminated from your ecological niche because of this vaccine creating antibodies against you, to shift to a new serotype, the, the bacteria will will and you know can and will do that. Um, that is very different for for viruses where they're not 
they're not shifting the expression of a gene. They're just different strains of the, of the virus. Mm. And so the question becomes, is there like an ecological niche that they're competing for with finite resources and there can't be two of the same in the same place? And I don't think that applies for mm. viruses because they're so small. I mean, it, it's the theoretical concern behind this, but the biology behind these are totally different. Yeah, and it may be, I'm, and it may be that, the, that what I'm really looking at or is the birth cohort is simply the relative prevalence being greater for these uh, subjects. I just wasn't sure, and I, I just wanted to raise it as an issue. All right, anyone, anyone want the last word on this one? I think we all kind of uh, agree that we're, we're, we're buying this story, even if there's potential for it to be slightly over, overstated, but really the public health benefits are, are massive. Well, two, two historical notes. The, 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 the original theory that led to the discovery that HPV was causing was the causal agent in, in most of cervical cancer started with a totally false interpretation of data where it was noted that rates of cervical cancer were extremely low in Catholic nuns versus married women. And the theory then by the doctor who noticed this was that the women have their corsets tied too tight. <laughs> so <laughs> the data were correct. The interpretation of the data was insane. Is that really <laughs> and true? It is really true. And, and also tr totally sexist. Yeah. Um, so maybe that, it had something to do with communion wafers. Uh, something <laughs> to do with that. Um, as it turned out, I think it's because on average, the Catholic nuns are having less sex than married women. On I think average. that's not a very controversial assumption. Um, the second thing of historical interest is that, you know, this, there's this wonderful book by Rebecca Sklute that came out a couple of years ago about the immortal life of Harry, Henrietta Lacks. Yeah, amazing book. Amazing book. And, and, and then she was the, the source of the tissue that led to these HeLa cells, Henrietta Lacks cells. Hila, she was, say what HeLa cells, just for people who are listening. Henrietta Lacks. This is a, 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 a line of, of human cells that is used in tissue culture experiments. They grow forever and ever and ever. And they, they do that because they were derived from Henrietta Lacks's cervical cancer cells, which grew like wildfire and ultimately killed her in 1951. Yeah. She was infected with HPV serotype 18, mm. which is one of the ones in this vaccine. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, with that, let's move on to our second segment, in which we are going to talk about Essentially, what's the what's the point of peer review? What is what is really the goal, and uh, what's fair game when we critique a study? So let me give you the the background for why I wanted to talk about this, which is that uh, we did an episode in which we talked about uh, the relationship between male circumcision and acquisition of HIV, as well as uh, HIV treatment, and we put this out there, and there were uh, a group of people uh, who responded. Loudly, There were not many of them, but they responded loudly to let me know that they very much disagree with the science that the scientific community nearly uh, universally accepts that uh, male circumcision is protective against HIV. In other words, we got, we got trolled. Uh, that is, would be my interpretation. Uh, they pointed me to many uh, critiques of those studies, of the original studies that looked at circumcision and HIV. And... I listened to those uh, podcasts and read the articles, and I felt like the articles, uh, these critiques were disingenuous. I felt like they came in with an agenda seeking to uh, uh, negate the scientific evidence, uh, and they were they were they were going to do that whether or not uh, there actually was validity to the criticism. So it was an a priori judgment on their part. That would be my opinion. Now, so to be, to be fair to them, to be, to be fair <laughs> to them, they probably think the same thing of my approach to things. So I'm not, I don't want to say that, but it, it got me to thinking 
you know, it was frustrating me that I felt like these, uh, this approach that we use of, you know, fair game critiquing of studies was being used as a, as a weapon, as opposed to being used as a, a means of being, uh, skeptical until we could, we could really prove, um, causation. Um, those studies I think were, were really quite solid and yet every study has some limitations. So you could theoretically use that to rip apart any study. So my point here is, uh, I'm trying to figure out what is peer review supposed to be doing? Uh, I'm going to assume that, that, that peer review is about trying to make science better, but is it, you know, is it the role of peer review then to say, uh, a particular study is, is uh, complete garbage and shouldn't make it into the literature? Or is it simply the role of peer review to point out the flaws in the study and then to let it go forward once we know what the flaws are? So I'm trying to figure out what the line there is. And I wonder what you guys think about the role of peer review. I don't think that I don't think that there is any hard line in, in, in terms of those those two approaches. And I think it's changing over time also. And I think that um, you know, over the course of, of, of the last 20 years, depe- depending on the discipline, there are different approaches. I mean, I think in the physics literature, papers are posted on the web very, very quickly. And then there is a very avid, a very, very sort of animated discussion um, among presumably peers, but a very open and transparent discussion about the, the merits of that particular paper. And that's, that's one way of doing it. The, the way that we're most used to peer review is that it, it's, it's not a transparent process. The reviewers are not known to the authors and the reviewers evaluate the strengths of the paper, determine whether it has a fatal flaw in terms of bias or conflict of interest or methodology, and they make a recommendation to the editor, editor uh, who then brings it to the editorial board, and the editorial board will make a decision on whether to publish it based on, largely on the reviewer's comments. But I think that there's also a step where papers are not considered prior to it being um, sent out to peer for peer review. Now, that could be because the paper just does not appeal to the readership of that particular journal, mm-hmm. or it could be that it's it just falls so far below the mark in one respect or another that it's not considered to be worth even sending out for peer review. So I think that, you know, there's, there's, there's a, a bunch of different approaches out there, and I think it's dynamic. I think it's, it's, it's changing with time. Okay, so you made you 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 made a uh, use the word fatal flaw. So I think that I think we would all agree that if if a paper has a fatal flaw such that really we think the results of the study are wrong, then it shouldn't be in the literature until it's either fixed or if it can't be fixed, then it shouldn't it should be in the literature. Right. Is that it? Is that the is that the bar? I mean, if, as long as you don't have a fatal flaw, we should say you know something should should go into the literature or what about? I mean, be, given that every study has errors, er, errors, bias mm-hmm. in them, mm-hmm. systematic and random. What's is is really is it really good enough to just say no fatal flaw? Lack of fatal flaw. What, what was that? What was that, that political thing that they had with the, the, the you know back in the, the Bush Cheney era where they had like total knowledge awareness or something where they were trying to hoover up every piece of information that existed about everybody at all times to in the interest of national security. 
I thought that was the Obama administration did that. I thought that was the Stasi in Germany. Uh, uh, maybe all of the above. I don't. I don't remember my history well enough. Apparently. Where are you going with this? Uh, I'm. I'm. I'm just saying, like you know, this. There. There is. This is sort of getting to the point of there. There is no perfect study. There is no total knowledge awareness. Everything yeah, we're yeah, doing yeah. is 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 a subset of some thing, and there's there's no perfect knowledge here. So we're all trying to just like grope in the dark as best as we can and figure out what what we're banging into with our shins so and making sense your- of it. Okay, so then what's your responsibility then as a peer reviewer? Yeah, so like, like you know, the, the, the extreme case is that the paper, paper is fatally flawed. And you're right. Ideally, the reviewer, you know, the authors would then go back and, and fix that flaw and rerun the analyses and possibly completely change all their conclusions based on it. And if they do all of that, then... They should probably be published, but that's that that's like on the on one end of the spectrum. I think the more mundane is is that the peer review process is sort of like essentially a quality control step in the science, where we're 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 not really expecting to to radically change the interpretation of these data, but what we're trying to do is to either seek greater clarification about things that were ambiguous or were poorly worded, or you know appeared that they have drawn conclusions illogically or the data suggests something that they don't say or there are limitations that they didn't note and they should be noted. And it, and it is all, in a sense, designed to generate a better quality of science that is more valid. And so, in a way, maybe the editorial board's like taking that first step by saying, here's a here's a group of papers and, and here are some that we just think are not interesting or not valid and we're not going to bother the peer reviewers. The peer reviewers then do mostly a QC step and occasionally an out like rejection. I mean, at least I was sort of curious about my own behavior in this. I went back and looked at all the peer reviews I've done in the last you know, five years. All 4,000 of them? <laughs> there were a lot of them. I've done like six in the last three weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, so I'm like, they, they keep coming. Um, I, I think I've told you guys that one year I was, <laughs> I, a journal that shall remain nameless gave me an award for being the most, one of the most, prolific. their most prolific reviewers. And all that told me was I'm reviewing too many. <laughs> exactly. And I cut back. <laughs> you were feeling guilty yeah. before. Now you're feeling like a sucker. <laughs> I, exactly. I mean, it was, it had the total opposite of the intended effect. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's funny. So, um, now I completely lost my train of thought. Good. But, yeah. So while I've distracted you, while I've distracted you, then let me, let me, let me ask you this question. How much of the, of the peer review process for you when you are a peer reviewer is, you pointing out flaws in a manuscript that can't be fixed, right? They're not, they did their analysis wrong. That or, would be a fatal flaw. No, I, is it? I mean, to me, yeah. I'm not it sure. It can't be fixed and it, and it. No, no, that implies that, that at, the, at the end of the peer review process, every study would be a perfect study. We can't no. fix all the problems. No. There are problems that can't be fixed. Well, all right. I see what you mean. I see so what, what I'm mean. saying here That's is it. how much of that peer review process then is you pointing out flaws that cannot be fixed them getting written into the limitation section, mm-hmm. and the paper is really no better off other than to point out that it might have this flaw. Expand their it, their their lack. And of is that confidence. enough? I, well, I think that's, is that I, enough? I think that that's valid. I think I, th- I What's think valid? I think it's valid for uh, the, the the critique that we make about a flaw that cannot be fixed to be woven into the limitations. Oh, I'm not of the arguing paper. against that. I'm just saying, is that enough? Or what is the line between that and a fatal flaw is what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, a fatal well, flaw would, would fundamentally change the interpretation of the data and cannot be corrected. And yet we often don't know what the interpretation, how the interpretation would be, would be different if many of the things we point out would, were wrong. I, I'm, part of my point here is I think we have an obligation as peer reviewers to go beyond simply pointing out problems 
to speculating on the direction and the magnitude of mm -hmm. those problems, mm -hmm. which can be addressed quantitatively with quantitative bias analysis. I brought it up last podcast. I'll bring it up again. It can oh, be you can done. explain what it is? Uh, it, a way of... <laughs> Analyzing the, the amount of bias? Of, 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 of getting at the amount of error that a, amount, a source of bias would have under plausible assumptions about the way that that particular source of bias is acting. So, so it can be done, and we can ask as peer reviewers, we can ask the 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 author of the study to go back and do those things. I don't think we do it all that much. Um, but I think, but even, we don't even have to quantify it so much as even if we just speculate. Sometimes the, the biases that we come up with act in the opposite of the direction that we think they would if we just were to, to logic it out. And I think, I think it's, I think we have a responsibility to go beyond just uh, pointing it out. So anyone, anyone want the last word on this one? I don't disagree, but I remember what I was going to say, which oh. is that I have very, very, very rarely uh, voted in oh. my reviews to outright object, uh, uh, reject a paper. You don't vote people off the island. I try not the to do that. Journal mostly, Island. mostly what I find I'm doing is 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 trying to hang on to that paper and and in some way compel the authors to improve it. Yeah. Rather than just yeah. letting it go. Is, is an example of quantitative bias analysis um, the stuff that you did for the yes. um, for the Apis paper? Yes. Or the it No was, Shots paper. It was the No Shots paper where yeah. we where we well, had a particular be, study. I think it would be interesting to to actually go through that for the listeners yeah, at some so point. For the, for Not the, now, maybe, but. but for for the for the listeners, we have been toying with this idea for a long time now of of uh, having doing one of our own studies as a podcast hmm. episode, so that we could we could point out the fact that our studies have problems too. Uh, and in this one particular one, we had we had some some errors that were. Raised not by the, fixable. They were they were not fixable, but they were quantifiable, and right. we quantified them. And in doing so, we're able to demonstrate that the impacts were minimal and often in the opposite of the direction that you would you you might expect. And that's that's really important information. So we will come back to that at some point, but not in this episode, because now we got to get on to the amazing and amusing here, where we want to look at some of the things that make us enjoy our jobs even more than we already do or look at the weird and wacky things that happen in our field or those that inspire us. Chris, I'm going to ask you to go first, and I will uh, I will be setting a timer this time to make sure you don't okay. go over your allotted, what is it, what is Three it again? Minutes. Three 30, minutes. 32 seconds. Ready, go. Go. All right, so this this is a, a paper that I found uh, uh, in the British Medical Journal um, yesterday, uh, published in 2018, so it's hot off the press. This is Diana Quirmbach, Q-U-I-R-M-B-A-C-H, and colleagues. Um, and it's an economic analysis looking at the effect of increasing the price of sugar-sweetened beverages on alcoholic beverage purchases. Yeah, this, uh, this one made the rounds. Yeah, this, this is an interesting one. Yeah. And so, like, for, for, you know, for the, the, the background here is that there's a lot of interest in taxing sugar-sweetened drinks so that you make them expensive and then the people will drink less, you know, Coke, basically, or, you know, sugary drinks. Um, and what they were asking is like, well, is there, a, is there a side impact of doing this? Like, so they're not spent, you know, you increase the tax on, on sugary sodas, but what do they do instead? Very good question. And, and they did a whole series of interesting economic analyses around this and basically <laughs> found that, you know, obviously the question is quite subtle and it depends on whether you're taxing very sugary drinks or somewhat sugary drinks or diet drinks, which don't have a lot of sugar in them. And it also depends on the income of the people who are being taxed because that changes their, like, you know, if you have tons and tons and tons of money, you may not care yeah. about the impact of the tax. But generally what happened in this cohort, um, which is all self-reported, so this is sort of modeling data, is that if you 
heavily taxed, highly sugary beverages. This is data from the United Kingdom. They seem to respond by drinking more beer. This is, this is <laughs> such, such a fascinating. I think that would be a, probably a common denominator for a whole lot of substitution behavior. It's right? such a fascinating example of unintended, the law of unintended consequences. Absolutely is. And and to quantify that, this like in this in this uh, analysis here, they had a drop in. Like with a tax, it would reduce consumption of, of sugary beverages by like around 0.7%. So it's not a, a huge right. difference. But the increase in alcoholic consumption of beer, lager, cider, or wine was plus 1.57%. So it, it not only exceeded, <laughs> not only moved it, but it vastly exceeded their consumption of sugary beverages to shifting to alcoholic beverages. Oh, and I boy. just thought that that was like, like you say... You know, the first law of public health is that no good deed will ever go unpunished. Uh, <laughs> so. Oh, boy. It, what, Francois, Francois Fenter, one of our colleagues from South Africa, always says that public health is the, the art and science of making people feel bad about what they eat and, and what, what they eat and having sex. And yeah. I forget, you know, it's one of those things. Of, yep. You know, we just go after one thing and another thing just... Comes right back. Right. Well, I have actually a companion piece for Christmas. All right, go for it. Wow. So I have, a, I have a piece that was published in the journal Forensic and Legal Medicine. When was this? This was in 2008. First author is Stephen Bolliger. Um, and this is information that will come in handy for your, ne- for your next beer brawl. Beer brawl? Beer brawl, what, yeah. what exactly is a beer brawl? Beer Can you define a beer that? Fight. A beer fight. Yeah, what so is when, that? That's that's when you get into a fight in a bar. Oh, oh okay. So it's not oh. a fight over what kind of beer we're going to drink. Well, it could be, like depending. We did in, you know, I mean, there are, there are beer beer brawls, yeah, you know, bar brawls different, for a whole lot of different. I have things. not had a bar brawl in a very long time. When was when was your last? Uh, okay. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Moving so on. So in any event, what uh, the question that they asked, uh, which they thought had um, relevant particular relevance because this is England also, uh, and apparently there are a lot of bar brawls and beer brawls in yeah. England because of hooliganism and all the rest of that stuff, was that they it's very popular. Uh, they asked the question, "What is more harmful, being hit over the head with an empty bottle of beer or a full bottle of beer?" Oh. So they went through this very systematic uh, like I read this evaluation <laughs> of the force required uh-huh. to break a beer bottle, whether it's full or whether it's empty. And they did a very systematic series of experiments where they dropped a steel ball onto a series of full beer bottles and empty beer bottles. Here's a picture of the beer bottle that they used. It was uh, a standardized beer bottle. Standardized beer bottle from Feldschlossen Brewery in Rheinfeld in Switzerland. Okay. And what what do you got? What do you what do you guys think would be um, a bottle that would have a higher Ten, uh, 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 tendency to break at a higher energy level or with more force. Empty or a full b- bottle of beer? Full because liquid is non-compressible, so it would push back harder. I was going to go empty. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. What's the answer? But I have no uh, logic behind so that. So apparently... It I've requi- only ever been hit by full bottles, so what do I know? It requires a fair amount of force, and they, they calculated the force in relation to the force 
for um, crushing a cranium, which had been previously determined on a series of cadaver heads. Okay, yeah. Um, but it turns, out Chris is, it turns out Chris is right, that, that the um, beer bottle that was well. full required 30 joules of impact energy as opposed to the empty bottles, which required 40 joules of impact energy. And that was in part because it's full and beer is not compressible, but also because it's carbonated and it's pushing out oh, with, so a it explodes. Gr- with a greater force. Oh, yeah. so I got it backwards. No, no. No, no, no you got it right. Ex- it'll, it'll break more easily. Break. It breaks yeah, yeah. more easily. Oh, but I, I was thinking it would break less easily. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, so, so Matt was right. Matt so right. I was right. Good job, Matt. Well, so, I've had so my you just know this is this is tr- your tr- misspent youth <laughs> <laughs> showing that it, that all those years were well spent. Do you want to see the dents but, in my cranium? But the trouble <laughs> the trouble is that a, that a full beer bottle <laughs> has trouble. more mass and more force when it hits your cranium, yeah, so it'll probably bad. do more damage. Yeah. All right. Wow. Well, wow, things that they don't teach you in school, right helpful there. Helpful to know too. And that it takes. Really it takes. A, apparently, you, it takes. So, you, so if you're about to be hit by someone who's like, got wait, a beer, but wait, full? you empty that first. <laughs> right. Got it. And got apparently, it. it takes somewhere between fourteen point one and sixty-eight point five joules of impact energy to crush your cranium. Okay. How many? That is a 14.1 weird... to 68.1. It's so, wow, so you're going to break their head when you cr- hit them. Yeah, no, that's the whole point. Wow. So, so it's, it's like deadly. Yeah. It's weird to me that that, that that is a known quantity to begin with, that well, anyone went through and tried to figure that out. But anyway. Wow. That is, that <laughs> is right. serious science. Yeah. All right. So mine, mine is a brief one. Mine is just a tweet this time. So uh, as you know, remember that we talked uh, about p-values. Uh, no, sorry, about uh, significance testing. No, I don't remember of, that. A couple of uh, no. podcasts ago, and in it, I showed you that list that professor from uh, the UK, Matthew Hankins, had on ways that euphemisms that people use for getting close to. So this is a, an additional one that was uh, tweeted out by a guy named Noah Motion. Additional list of... No, 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 no just an additional uh, 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 comment on... The uh, people using the approaching significance. Uh-huh. Uh, he's tweets at at stadmod citizen, and his tweet says, "Statistical test results do not approach approach in quotes do not approach significance, nor do they flee from it, sneak up on it, <laughs> skirt around it, loiter next to it, pass by it unknowingly, gaze at it longingly from afar, or plan expeditions to find it in remote mountain ranges." <laughs> And then there were a couple of good, couple of good additional responses people had. Uh, have they ever made highly inappropriate suggestions to significance? Uh, the result innocently flirted with significance, but failed to seal the deal. The p-value holidayed in significance once, but does not live there. The outcome, the outcome met significance in 2011 on a package cruise for about six minutes. And my favorite one. The p-value swiped left on significance. Oh, oh. good one. <laughs> uh, so those made me happy. Oh, All yes, right. indeed. That's brilliant. So that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode or you want to suggest a topic for keep us to, to take yourself. off, keep it to yourself, says Don. But otherwise, you can tweet at us at at PopHealthyX or you can tweet me at at ProfMattFox or Chris at at IDDocGill. Preferably late at night. Or done at at DTheo1. Or you can find us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthyx.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Director of Lifelong Learning at BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing, of which we seem to have more and more Need. every episode. 
Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you will download our next episode. <laughs>